Hi, I'm Rob Shear. I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, author of the book, A Forever Family, but most importantly, I'm the father of five children. Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a radio host and now the director of communications for Comfort Cases. Our country's foster care system is shattered, and the podcast is about how we, as a community, can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast. Today we are talking to Quay Bowen. Quay grew up in foster care and she is now doing very well for herself. She started her own business. She has a blog and she's going to tell us about her story. So thank you, Quay, for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Quay, I'm so excited. Um, you actually reached out to me through a Facebook um, group that you and I both belong to. And I have been following you for a while. And so um, I'm really, really excited. When you when you reached out and said you wanted to do a podcast, I was like, yes, this is absolutely the great opportunity. So um, I'd love for you to tell us more about you and tell us more about your story. I am a Emory, I like to introduce myself saying I'm an Emory University graduate. I got a neuroscience degree from there back in 2011. I'm a mom and I used to work in clinical research. I actually worked on a team, um, not technically working on Ebola, but I worked on the team at Emory during the Ebola pandemic in the infectious disease um, program. Uh, helping keep the research going afloat while all the doctors are pulled away to save the world from Ebola. And um, yeah, I bring up the education part because my foster care journey for the most part was me trying to get access to an education. Uh, the last year I went to school prior to entering foster care was sixth grade. That was my last full year. And from sixth grade to about 19 years old, um, my foster care journey was defined by being denied access to an education that looks, it looks different in different forms. But for the most part, I had like, um, I was told that they didn't have to enroll me in school. I was thrown out of school for being homeless intermittently. And it was just it was just a mess. The whole system was a mess. I was part of a era right after the nineteen ninety nine Foster Cares Act where the state was really just pushing kids out so that they didn't have to pay for a college later. And I fell victim to that. So where did you live? Where where did this happen? I'm in from Atlanta, Georgia. So this took place mostly in Atlanta, Decatur, Stone, um, Sandy Springs, Georgia, uh, Fulton, and DeKalb County, uh, DFAC. And which so, actually got sued the year after I left foster care. And so they they kicked you out of school so that they wouldn't have to end up paying for you to go to college. So did you have a did you have foster parents that where you just stayed at their house and didn't go to school? It's a two part thing. So the school system kicked me out of school for not having parents. The foster care system refused to enroll me into school um, and threw me out to the streets so they wouldn't have to ultimately pay for our college education. Did you find a good attorney? I went to a couple of attorneys while going on the street, and they were just like, this is just too big. Um, this is, uh, we don't really deal with this. But after I left foster care, there were uh, a couple of kids, too, because a girl ran away from one of the shelters I was at, and she got um, gang raped. Um, and they ended up suing on her behalf and for, quote-unquote, change. 
And I believe those two shelters, the Fulton County Shelter and the Cab County Shelter that I was at, were closed down. Um, there was this big to-do that none of the kids who were actually victimized by the system during this time um, benefited from about exposing how the state was refusing to take money to, to pay for foster kit, uh, foster homes. The state was underfunding group homes. The, the conditions at the shelters were horrible. One of the shelters I stayed at was the Fulton County Shelter. We actually had pimps walking on campus to take girls. Um, they were criminalizing teenage behavior. So, uh, for example, my first time I went to jail was for playing baseball, and a bat flew out of my hand, and it hit a special needs kid. And the teacher who didn't like me, um, one of the teachers, only one of them didn't like me, uh, he convinced the kid that I did it on purpose and had me sent to jail. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Um, that, that's one of many examples of just the deplorable conditions that were there. Um, one of my first experiences there was in trying to put a more plant in my arm. I was 13 years old, a virgin, a Jehovah's Witness virgin, so I'm like, sex is just not on my radar. But they tried to force me to get a North plant and, and said that if I did it, I couldn't have a foster care placement. Wow. I just actually yeah. read a news story, and I don't know if it's in Atlanta, but where they are uh, giving women um, hysterectomies without their consent. And I can't th- yeah. see if it's in... Um, it's, it's, it's Georgia. It's in Georgia? Yeah. And I was like, that is so unbelievable that that would even happen. But now just hearing what you're saying about them trying to put a Norplan in your arm, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's unbelievable. So so how did you end up getting to a place where you went on to a great school and got a degree and have done so well? Um, well I hate to say it this way because it almost encourages um, this, but I had a kid. Um, I met a boy after a very long journey in foster care, and we quote-unquote fell in love. We were 20 and 19 years old, and we ran off and decided we were going to have a family. We were going to make our own family. And because I had a kid, I was officially an adult. Um, And that allowed me to be able to apply to college without having to worry about, like, what parents are going to assign for the loans, et cetera. So I ended up getting a GED after a boy left because boys leave. Girls, please listen. Boys, leave. <laughs> um, I got my GED, enrolled in a two-year college, got straight A's from there, enrolled in UMass, um, got straight A's there, but my son was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, so I came back to Georgia, and on a whim, I applied to Emory, and I got in. Wow. So, so, oh my gosh, I have so many questions. Okay, so from the age, from some sixth grade until you met this boy, um, where did you live? On the streets for the most part and in random people's houses. Um, I tell us when I pitched my story uh, trying to write a book or when I did a screenplay, it's like I survived by my ability to calm my way into the hearts, homes, and wallets of other people. And that's not true. Um, it was by the sheer break of luck, to be very honest. Um, I slept on buses. Um, a typical day for me would be sleeping on MARTA. Riding, which is our train system, riding the trains up and down um, during the daytime, then going to the airport and just kind of hiding out there. Sometimes I could sleep in the uh, little chapel we have in our airport here in Atlanta to have a little privacy. I did wash up in the airport bathroom or at uh, one of the train station bathrooms. I had a lock once I kind of got tired of uh, people walking in on me <laughs> trying to get clean. Um, and then there were times where I would just run into random people and. Um, 
they would take me in. And I would not recommend anybody do that. Just to be clear, I would not recommend any child go off with a stranger because that can end horribly, and it actually ended up horribly for a lot of my friends. But somehow I lucked out and had some of the nicest people take me in, and it was for short periods of time. Um, my nana took me in for the longest. It was like two or three months, and then she hooked me up with a daughter who was a, um, what are they called, a quiverful family? I think they were quiverful, like whatever the dubs are. Right, yeah. Um, and um, stayed with them for a while. They actually are people who got the foster care system to reopen my case because after a group home I was in, and after I'd finished uh, the program at this group home, um, rather than sending me off into an independent living program to go off and have a great life, this is around the time where the state was just like sent any kid close to 18 out. So they sent me back to my mom who didn't like me. Like, most people can say, like, their parents were on drugs or something. My mom just didn't like me, um, and I don't blame her. I was actually a rape baby. Um, <laughs> found that out. And well, so first I of all, hold on, hold, on for, hold on for a second. I, I, want you to, I want you to know something. You, you were a product of a choice that someone else had made, not what your mother made, what somebody else has made. And so I, I love you, and I don't want you to think that she, just because you were a product of rape, that means that she shouldn't have liked you. And I know it reminded her every single day, but we all both know that, you know, lots and lots of therapy, which, by the way, I'm a firm believer in therapy. I want you to know that, that you are a good human and deserve to be loved. And so I'm sorry that your mom wasn't able to see the beautiful human that you are. Well, it was, I can say... This part of the story, it's hard to describe, like, my experience with my mom, um, because now as an adult, I can see it through her eyes. She, her whole life was completely destroyed by an incident that happened when she was 14 years old. And not only that, I was special needs. Um, if if, it, if I were born today, they would diagnose me with autism straight away. Um, this violent outbursts, meltdowns, crying all the time. My first grade, I like, was pulling my hair out because I couldn't get a math problem right. Um, she was constantly losing jobs because she had to come, out, come get me. And then on top of all of that, my younger sister ended up being kidnapped. So all of this happened at the same time. Um, and my mom just had a snap, like she broke. Um, there's only so much any person can take. And my mom broke, and she was just like, I'm tired of this. And she told me not to be home when she got back. Um, no mother should do that, but as a mom, as a person, as a woman who's experienced trauma, like, my entire life, I understand my mom having that snap, and I don't, I don't, I guess you can say I forgive her. So it's not that I don't blame her, I forgive her, because I can understand. So it's not so, like, it's not so much that she should be the villain of the story. She's as much of a victim as I was. She is only 14 years older than me. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, I have a, I have two sons. My one son's mother was 12. My other son's mother was 14. Um, and, you know, I even, to hear you say the word forgiveness, you know, I grew up very much like you did. I, I didn't become homeless until I was a senior in high school. So I'm just in awe with you. Um, but I will tell you, it took me until my early 30s to forgive my mother. Um, and again, I, I don't forget. I don't. Um, forgiving her doesn't mean that what she did was right. Forgiving her is what gave me the strength back to get the grit that I needed to be successful. Um, and, and that's what I want to know is like, are, 
were you an only child? No, I have a younger sister who was kidnapped, um, legally kidnapped. Right. So is she, is she found? No. I mean, we know where she is. There's a woman who offered to help my mom with babysitting. A woman, a rich lady, offered to help my mom babysitting my sister. Within a month, my little sister was calling that woman mom. Um, as I was having my issues, my mom would have would rely on this woman because she had had such an awful experience with her own family um, at, for help. And my sister's dad was a spousal abuser, child abuser. Um, he didn't start off that way. He just turned into that. Um, and so over the years, my mom's thinking she has this friend, oh, this friend who could help her. And then the friend made power moves and made my mom sign over custody. Um, and my, my mom lost my sister. That's what caused her psychiatric break. And do you have Before any that, contact? You don't have any contact with your sister now? Uh, she hates us. Um, she feels like she was thrown away or given away. Again, I can't blame her. Um, and I'm a, I'm a reminder of being given away. The woman essentially brainwashed my sister. This is a whole long, complicated story. Um, that and one of the reasons my mom didn't like me is because I was the reason. I was the catalyst. I was the one this uh, person would come to and get dirt from because I was just so angry at my mom. My mom doesn't like me. She doesn't understand me. So I say, I tell her, like, we were left home alone. And um, she'd be the person I called if I was scared or something. Um, That wasn't a good thing. And when she finally made her power move, every time she had my sister, she wouldn't allow for me or my mom to talk to my sister. Uh, My sister was always too busy. So she grew up not having any contact with us from the age of three years old. With my mom being just super naive, thinking this lady was trying to help her. But in reality, she did everything she needed to do to just usurp her daughter. It's, have you ever seen the movie um, An Imitation of Life? Yes. My mom's relationship with my sister is kind of like that. She's just this figure that keeps popping herself into my sister's life because she loves her so much. Um, and once a relationship with her, but my sister's happy being, by the way, my sister's biracial and she's really ghost, and she's happy not being that woman's daughter. She's got her fair-skinned mom, and she can be part of a debutante family and wealthy, and she grew up hanging out with Lady Simone and being prom queen while I was schlepping it in buses and um, washing up in airport bathrooms. Are you mad at her? Are you mad at your sister? No. I miss my sister. The only person who's to blame in this whole situation is uh, the lady who took her. Um, she couldn't have kids of her own, and then all of a sudden just popped on her doorstep. It's this, like, incredibly fair-skinned girl that easily passed as her daughter, and she made her moves to get herself a daughter. And she didn't have to go through the foster system or the adoption system. It was actually probably the cheapest adoption that ever took place. That is unbelievable, and there was nothing, you know, that your mom could do as far as, you know, saying, hey, this woman kidnapped my child. I mean, she signed it over, and did. was there ever any, like, law enforcement involved or anything like that? No. When my mom finally put the foot down like, give me my daughter back, it was too late. My sister was 11, um, and my sister was 11 and had spent half of her life with someone else, someone else as her mom or her primary, the person who she called mom. And uh, so when my mom got her back, it's around. She also got me back at this time. This is when the state was just like send all the kids back to wherever 
whatever placements we said that were not fit for them to live at in the first place, send them back there. And so me and my sister were back home with my mom, and my sister was just not happy, and she's getting in trouble, and my mom is blaming me because her daughter, like, this is, like, actually her daughter. This is the kid she wanted, she planned, she loved. Um, her daughter was falling apart and didn't want to be there, so she said I was a bad influence. She threw me out the day after my 16th birthday. Um, and then um, shortly after, my little sister ran away, and um, the woman played it very smart. She ran away. She made my sister go to a children's shelter, and then from there, they called a lawyer and um, had everyone come to the table, and my sister's just like, you're not my mother. This is my mom. I don't love you. I don't want to live with you. I don't like you. This is where I'm going to be, and if you try to take me back, I'm going to just run away again. So my mom, at that point, had no choice but to sign over full custody. She had already signed over partial custody to her a few years late, earlier um, when we were getting evicted, and this, little, this person said that she wouldn't take my sister back unless my mom signed over custody to her. So after... So, besides psychological problems your mother definitely had, um, did your mom have any drug abuse issues? No, and, like, she doesn't have... See, this is the hard part for a lot of people to understand. It's not a psychiatric issue. It's perpetual trauma and having a lack of choices. But I think that that is... I, I mean, and by the way, you're the neuroscience, okay? I don't even know the difference between there, there, and there. What I do know is that that someone, and, and for me even, who went through trauma, um, I have, you know, uh, psychiatric issues. And that means I suffered through depression. I suffered through, you know, um, the, I suffered through anxiety. There's, you know, so I, I don't mean, I don't want you to think that I take, I'm saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying, I mean, this woman, for the trauma that she went through, um, she's got psychiatric issues because nobody's ever helped her deal with her trauma. I mean, no one's ever helped her life either. That's that's what people find it hard to understand. She's a single black mom in the 90s where the government was taking away any kind of avenue for help. And by the way, they were taking every single child because of the word neglect, which was bullshit. And if the skin of your the skin of your color made you determine whether or not you were neglectful or the fact, you know, I talk about this quite often and I I get a a lot of backlash and I will repeat it. I am a white privileged male a white privileged male. I'm raising four black children and I have one white child. And you better believe that when we walk into Nordstrom's that they look at my 19 year old white boy a lot differently than they look at my 13 year old black boy who is the same size. And the, we know that the racism is there. We know that, you know, children are looked differently by raising by black parents and white parents and, and, and that definition of neglect is bullshit, in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, what your mother was going through in those years, I hate to tell you this, sister, we are going through it in 2020 as well. Oh, yeah. In 2020 yeah, as well. This is something that's never changed. Um, I can't go into the stories of some of the stuff that my friends who were not put in foster care experienced. But I can say that I have a whole lot of friends that I met in foster care of all races, but they had one thing in common. They were from poor families. 
and a lot of them were taken away from their families because their mom couldn't pay the electric bill or the gas bill, or maybe their parents thanked them. And they were put into a system where they were almost ritualistically abused. They took poor kids from their homes and put them into foster homes and facilities and shelters and turned them into child abuse victims. Yeah. This is a story. That's that, why I'm telling my story. Not so much like, oh, like my story is an example of generational trauma experienced by African-Americans. I mean, there's no way of getting around that. But the story of the years that I spent in foster care is the story of a group of kids who were taken away from poor families and thrown in a system to essentially ultimately just be funneled into the prison system. A lot of them ended up sex trafficked. A lot of them the mental health system, that stuff that we experienced was atrocious and nightmares. Like Paris Hilton just came out. I'm talking about the abuses that she experienced at her uh, boarding school for a year. I experienced that and all of my friends experienced that to an nth degree. They locked, they tied us to, they tied us to like these cross-like beds, strapped us down, put sheets over our faces and left us there for like hours and hours and hours for doing stuff as simple as talking back. Um, there were kids who were arrested and thrown into jail. Like, you're 15 years old, you're discovering sex, you pull around with another kid who's 15. That happened right when I got to the shelter, and those two kids were taken to jail and charged with sex crimes. Everybody, as you're listening to this podcast, I mean, I want you all to know that we are not telling this story to get, you know, the wow factor. We're telling this story because you need to know this is happening. And by the way, this is not just happening in the 90s. It's not happening just in the 70s and 80s when I was a kid in the system. It is happening in 20. 20. It is happening today. Um, we have continued to make these kids feel they're invisible and disposable. And y- you have you've shown us that. I mean, you know, I'd like to know, you know, and again, I just keep thinking about the grit that you have the this this listening to you talk, you've got such an unbelievable passion. Um but I can tell that you are an amazing mom and an amazing human, and I'm still trying to figure out where the hell you got that from. Um, I can say, and this is going to be sound crazy, I got it from my mom um, and my grandma. And any person who I could list that was a victim of their own generation that I experienced, I have... I. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm getting choked up because it's so easy when I tell my story for a lot of people to interpret my mother or my grandmother as, like, these horrible people. But in reality, they were doing the best that they could with what they had. Um, And when I hear their stories and I hear what happened to them, it's like a little spark in me that says, like, you have strength. And I hate this trope of the strong black woman, but because... When people say that, it leads black women to where we only have one choice, to be strong. Um, when I, after all of this happened, everything happened to me, I asked one of the old people, one of the staff members at a group home, like, why, I was 15 years old, why did you guys just 
watch me struggle. Why I'm 15, I'm 16, now look at these kids on TV, you know, like I'm looking at One Direction, this is when the epiphany came to me, I'm like, they look like babies. How could anyone look at me and, and have, you know, at 15, you feel like you're an adult. But as an adult, you can look at a 15-year-old mother and a child, and I'm just like, how could people just look at me and leave me just to the wayside? Like, how could anyone say, like, I'm in your home, and you're taking care of me, and then be like, okay, I got you back in the shelter. Awesome. We got, we got deep after we opened your case, as opposed to, hey, I'm going to adopt you. And it, the lady said to me, she's like, you were just so strong. We knew you'd be okay. And over and over again, it was people who were just like, she's so strong. She's going to be okay. We don't have to take her. We don't have to keep her. We don't have to, you know, keep her forever. We just have to get her to her next step, her next task. Um, and that was my downfall, but it was also my saving grace. Um, there's this story, uh, when I talk about women in my family and what they've gone through, there's this story. I don't know if it's true because I don't have connections with my family like that. But my aunt told me that my great grandma ran away from an Indian school. You know what those are? Yeah. Like back yeah. in the day where they would kidnap yep. Indian kids. Yep. So she ran away from Indian school and she ended up being hit out by my grandpa's family. That is an alleged story. I say allegedly because this is one aunt and everyone thinks this aunt's crazy, but I've heard stories about my grandma who's native, blah, 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 blah. My great-grandma, sorry. And so when I had that story of this Indian girl who ran away from Indian school because she wasn't going to be abused, and I'm sitting in the shelter and I'm being treated horribly, they tried to starve me out at one point um, because I wouldn't say the prayer. And... It's just like, I don't have to take this, and I will just run away. And so the entire time, it's like, this is not okay for me. It is not okay for me to be treated this way. It is not okay for any of us to be treated this way. I'm going to leave now. Um, and wow. that is pretty much my, my foster experience, is just watching horrible stuff happening to kids around me, experiencing horrible stuff, and saying, you know what, this isn't okay. I'm it's not, not okay. It, it's not okay. So, 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 you know, as as we have to to wrap this this podcast up, I've got a I've got a couple questions I have to have. Number one, what do you hope to get out of telling your story? My biggest hope is for people to wake up, for people to see foster care as not the saving grace for children. Yes, um, exactly. That that like oh, the only kids there are horribly abused and neglected. No, it's just poor kids. Most, by and large, it's poor kids. Cause, and then from there, say, this isn't okay, change the system. For them to know that the biggest, the most logical placement for teenagers, um, when I say logical, I mean the people who are going to keep them and not have high turnover and not have the stories of, I went to 18 different foster homes, um, for teenagers are group homes so that they can stop underfunding group homes so that they can have more oversight on foster homes so that if there is a kid, so that kids aren't coming from their poor families and being molested in foster homes and then being told that they're lying. I agree. Uh, I agree with you. I People get shocked at me when I tell them all the time that foster care is not the answer. And I have five children from the system. And I'm telling you right now, foster care is not the answer. The answer is we have to give families the ability to be better families. We have to support the families. We have to give them, you know, the mental um, health that they need. We have to pay them a living wage. We have to educate. I mean, we have to support the family before 
before we start tearing the family apart, because we know this better than anybody. You and I are prime examples of this. The only thing that the system does is the system will actually take us from foster care and then put us in a penitentiary. You know, they they sit here and they say, oh, we're taking a, we're, we're coming and saving you. But then once you turn 18, they throw you to the wayside. They throw you to the wayside. They threw us to, they throw kids to the wayside still before 18. One of the reasons I started telling my story, because I was like most foster kids who did not want to be defined by foster care once I got into college. I just didn't. And I, but I still wanted to get back. So I did this whole fundraiser at my school to raise awareness for foster care and to raise some money. And I went to this big conference in Georgia. It was like celebration of something. I can't say the name, but it was celebration of the kids. Right? All the kids who are graduating. And these are the stories I was hearing. Stories of kids who are eating sugar sandwiches, like bread, sugar, bread, because their foster mom wouldn't feed them. Stories of kids who weren't graduating. They were just getting their GEDs because they had missed so much school that they couldn't catch up. They couldn't even graduate. That actually happened to me. I was in my senior year after having watched my best friend get killed and getting an award for it for, like, my still going to school and, you know, sleeping at, at, like, working two jobs and paying for a hotel room and still going to school, and then they were like, you've missed too many days, you can't graduate. Well, I mean, the um, statistics show that only 54% in the, 54% of the kids in the system actually graduate from high school, and that is... And only 3% that, get college education. It's our fault. 70% of them want to go to college. 70% of kids in foster care want to go to college. In my group homes, every single kid had a dream. And not only did it have dreams, but they had talent. There was a kid who had his first art piece sell for $5,000, which he got none of. Um, there was a basketball star. There was a girl who, won, who literally won an award to go skiing with Jimmy Carter. And then by the time foster care was done with her, um, she won an academic award, which ended up with her going to ski with Jimmy Carter. By the time foster care was done with her, she was a, she was a single mom with a, with a dude who was strung out on cocaine, and was, they were trying to actively take her kids. Speaking of taking kids, they also kidnapped one of my friend's kids. She had her baby in foster care. They threw her in a mental hospital to keep her from him. This girl did nothing. Like, she was not like the rest of us. We were just like, well, we're here. Might as well act out. She was just like, I've got to be here so that I can get a group home so I can get to this innocent living program and get my son. And while she was there, before she could turn, before she turned 17 and could leave, they adopted her child out from wow. under her and said, you don't want this baby. She's been in foster care for two years. And she's like, I've been in foster care for two years. Unbelievable. That is, these are the stories that I'm telling. I'm telling this so that our, my friends can have a voice. A lot of them don't want to, a lot of them want people to know their stories, but they don't want to be connected to the stories. Like even me, when I write this book, around writing my book, I put the character's name as Zeta because I just can't be permanently connected to these experiences. But I also want people to know because they don't want this to keep happening to other kids. And most of us would have already adopted and fostered kids, but the system put, made our life such hell that we're all in our 30s barely trying to scrape together new lives for ourselves, barely staying above water. Uh, and for some of us, we have criminal records a mile long that we couldn't even adopt a kid if we wanted to. 
Right. No, you're right about that. You're right. Like I said, I mean, it is. I laugh when people say, oh, the system's broke. I'm like, hell no. The system is not broke. It's shattered. It's shattered. Um, and it has to be rebuilt because it's definitely doing nothing for no one. Listen, I'm going to tell you, this is not going to be the last time you're going to be on our show. I think that you have so much more to bring to the table. Um, I think that you are someone who we need to continue to hear your story and to hear the stories of all of our brothers and sisters who have gone through this in the system. And what I would love to challenge for you is for you to bring more people to the table. And so we can let people know this is what's happening. This is not a book. And you, this is something that is life. This is truly happening in life. I remember when I wrote my book, someone read it and called me afterwards and they said, this can't be true. And I was like, what? And they were like, all this stuff can't be true. What happened to you? And I said, are you kidding me? I was like, it didn't only happen to me. It's still happening to children every single day. How can people get a hold of you? How do people reach out to you? How do people follow you? How do people, I, I hear you also write a blog. Yeah, so the blog that I've started is um, an effort to try to get a book published. Um, I actually started this journey because my whole thing was TV. I wanted to work in network television, blah, blah, blah. And um, one of the things I was told when I was pitching this book, like you were told that this couldn't possibly happen to you. I was told I was no one from nowhere and no one wanted to hear my story. Well, we and do want to hear it. I, I took that to heart. And for a long time, I just kind of let it sit. Um, and then I heard about the boy who, there's a boy who was killed um, during restraint that I have had happen to me hundreds of times, probably thousands. I was really, I got to the point where I was really bad. Um, uh, but it's not because, it, that shouldn't be a quantifier, but this is what they did to us. They restrained us. And the fact that they're still doing it, the fact that they're doing it and it's killing people, it's, not okay. So I decided to fully push myself into creating a um, community, not community, but creating a quote-unquote following. I think that idea is so stupid. Um, but and so that I can get the books published, which they're called Driftwood. And um, it's a, it explores my, my time in foster care and my family, first starting with my family life and in the early years of foster care, I'm pretty much just showing all of the things that happened early on, like as a 13-year-old girl, and then going into different topics of what happened like once I was on the street, and then what happened like later in life when I'm trying, now you're 19 years old and you're trying to heal from it, but you can't heal because you're not, it's not just you, it's like 20 other kids who you're not, who I was being taken care of, who were all victims of the same system that are all living in my apartment, just trying to figure out life. Um, we would love we have a, we have a blog um we have a blog and we would love to to have you write for our blog yeah that would be amazing if you want to share some of your stories um or share you know information or anything we actually need people to write for the blog. So if that's something that you're interested in, um, we can talk about that further. And there's some great people yeah. that read our blog. So we definitely give an opportunity if you're definitely heading in that book route. Listen, I have to tell you, I am just absolutely in awe. I knew that this was going to be an amazing podcast. I hope everybody, everybody, please, please listen through all of the podcasts. This is an amazing, amazing woman who um, is truly the definition of what I 
call a good human. And I am so, so happy to now I get to call her my friend. Dana, if people wanted to listen to this podcast, where exactly do they listen to it? So we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And at comfortcases.org slash podcast, we will have the link to Quay's blog and her social media and, you know, where you can find all of that great information. You can follow me on Facebook at facebook.com backslash thequazy180, or you can follow my website um, is quazy180.com. There I post stories from my foster care journey under the title Driftwood, but I also talk, use, put my education news and post about social events, um, social justice and tournament um, and medicine, neuroscience. And we will actually um, have those links on the podcast when the podcast goes up, everyone. So, you know, we always end our podcast the same way. Dana, you got a question to ask? I do. So if you could change two things about the foster care system, what would they be? Um, for starters, uh, the government, which instead of funding $200, $300 for group homes every day or foster care parents $300 a month um, to take care of kids, they would give those, that kind of money to families so they could keep the kids. That's the most logical thing. Uh, the second thing I would change about the foster system would be um, I, would cre- I would have them create a network for people once they get out of foster care so that they, once they, those people who do get their education so people who do make it out without a prison system, without a, a jail record, um, so that they can have a network from which to build their own life. The hardest part of my journey actually wasn't even foster care. It was as a college graduate trying to make it in a world where your connections are the key and where I had none because my only connections were other foster kids. Great wow. answers. Great answers. Well, listen, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. This is probably one of our longest podcasts, and I love yep. it. It was worth every single minute of it. And again, as I said, this isn't going to be the last time that you're going to be on our podcast because we think you have a lot more to give to each and every one of us. By the way, everybody, listen, I've asked you this all the time, and I'll ask again. Please, as you listen to this podcast, share it, share it, share it, and leave a review. It is so, so important to leave a review. And if any way you want to reach out to Dana or I, please just go to comfortcases.org backslash podcast podcast and you can do that. Listen, everybody, don't forget each and every day we have an opportunity and the opportunity is to be a good human. Take care, everyone. Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. And check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org. So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob Shear, Instagram at Rob underscore Shear, and on Twitter at Rob Shear 6. And please share this podcast and leave us a review. Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.